Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 8. You'll see it to be a psalm that has bookends. In other words, the first verse and the last verse are almost identical. And those verses, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want us to think this morning, as we look, we'll look at the other verses of this psalm as well, a picture of our overwhelming God, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, and he begins to talk about uh, looking at the heavens and the splendor of the heavens. And if we were to just look up, that we would inevitably come away with an overwhelming view of God. So... Think about the heavens with me for a minute. Think about something so great, you have to measure it in light years, okay? Our galaxy is measured in light years. First of all, you need to know a light year is the measurement of light, you know, light, how fast light travels, and in a year, you know... The answer is approximately 6 trillion miles. Okay, that's a, that's a long way. Now, I'm trying to break that down so I can comprehend it. So, let's suppose we jump on the space shuttle. Because that's the fastest thing I know. Space shuttle travels 5 miles a second. Okay? 18,000 miles per hour. That's cruising. So we jump on the space shuttle, and we're going 18,000 miles per hour. It would take us 37,200 years to go one light year. Okay? You're going to, I mean, none of us can travel in our lifetime one light year. Not even on the space shuttle. Can we do this, do such? And that's, you know, traveling at a five miles a second. Enormous. Our Milky Way, that's our home galaxy. Our Milky Way is 100,000 light years from end to end. So when you look up and you see the Milky Way, you have to measure it in light years. And none of us could even go one light year, much less 100,000 light years, to check it all out. And we stand back and we look and begin to get a sense of the greatness, the bigness of God. Those of you who study astronomy know the next galaxy up uh, from Milky Way is Andromeda. That is 260,000 light years from end to end. More than twice the Milky Way. And through the Hubble telescope, they say there's another 100 million beyond that. And I'm thinking, you don't have to go any further. I'm done already. 
You've already gone way beyond my ability to comprehend. I can give you the facts, the figures, but I, it's difficult to comprehend something so big, so immense. It just boggles my mind when I look at the heavens and see God's majesty. It boggles my mind that sometimes we think we're equal with God. What? We don't come close to comprehending our God and His greatness and His splendor and His majesty. We can't even comprehend a light year. And He's got hundreds of thousands of them on display just with His creation in the sky. God displays His splendor. You know, if, if, if there were no God... We're lost. I mean, when you begin to think of the the greatness of God's creation, surely you begin to see that we can't possibly be more than a microcosmic speck on his finger. And if he doesn't care for us, we're nothing. We have no hope because just sheer size. I mean, I think about, Things I care nothing about. Anybody been bit by a noceum? That's what I call them, noceum. Have you ever seen a noceum? I've looked for noceums when I've been bit. And they are really, 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 really small. You've got to have good eyesight to even see one. But they sting like fire ants. And they, they're in my leaves in my yard. They hop on me for some reason. They like me. I smell just right for them. And I hate no seams. But to me, they're, they're a speck of dust that I could care less about. I'm so thankful God doesn't say, you know, I've got to spend some time in, what's the name of that galaxy, in Andromeda. It's big, and I, I, I don't have time for you. But our God doesn't do that. Were it not for his design for us, there would be nothing for us because we're just a speck. As we look at Psalm 8, it throws out the question to us in verse 4, what is man? So you see it's leading us to a comparison. Begin with the majesty of God, and he's going to ask us, then then compare man to that. So I want to start with the question, though it's not in the text. I want to start with the question, what is God? As we look at verses 1 through 3, because we're going to arrive at the question, what is man, when you consider. So, as we look at the question, what is God, verse 1 begins the answer, O Lord, our Lord. You see, and I shared this with you some weeks ago, whenever you see in your Bibles, Lord in all capital letters, that is the personal name for God. The Hebrews did not like saying it. They didn't want to blaspheme the name of God. So whenever they came to the personal name of God in the text, they would substitute the title for God, Lord, so as to keep from blaspheming or by saying the name wrongly. The best I can figure out, especially from Exodus 3, where God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush, that the name 
we presume it to be Yahweh. That's the best translation we have of those Hebrew letters. So that's the way this psalm begins. O Yahweh, and then the title, Our Lord. Now what does that tell you? First of all, it tells you that our God is a personal God. He has a name. And his name is majestic in all the earth. The earth knows when Yahweh shows up. The earth knows that Yahweh is creator, sustainer, overall, because he is Lord. That's his title. To be Lord of all is overall, creator of all. But he's also personal. Not only does he have a personal name, but we see it in the pronoun, our. Yahweh, our Lord. Our God. And that's what gives significance to who we are, is that we have a personal God who cares about this part of his creation. And if he did not, like I said, it would be pointless. There would be no meaning to our existence. Who is God? He is Lord over all. He is ours. He is personal. Um, He's not territorial. Next phrase, how uh, majestic is your name in all the earth. He's not just Lord over some parts, certain territories, but he's overall. He's in charge of all that there is um, and his majesty. Interesting, have we moved, he says, he displays his majesty above the heavens. Verse 2, it's just interesting to me how he uses babies. It says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Interesting, isn't it? As big as God is. As gri- by big, I mean as great as God is. As powerful as God is. If he wants to wipe out enemies, you would think, no, no problem. You got the power to crush enemies. And yet he says he chooses the weakest of man to wipe out the strength of man. He chooses babies. He chooses infants to deal with his adversaries. And sometimes we don't really comprehend how... If God is so great and powerful, he can take the weakest among us and make it strong enough to wipe out the strongest among us. And that takes great strength and power to do so. He says he does that by using the mouths of infants. Now, to see how this really applies, when Jesus showed up, He quoted this verse to the scribes who were having problems with what kids were doing around Jesus. Uh, Let's look at it, and you see see the meaning. Look at Matthew 21. It's quoted in verse 16. Let me read just a little before that. Jesus has just cleansed the temple. Matthew 21, verse 12, and... um, talks about that. 
Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So he's just healed a lot of people, blind people, lame people that been that way from birth. I mean, this is big miracle working time. Verse 15, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, it's like, okay, this is wonderful. You can't deny that. But it says, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, the chief priest, the scribes, became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, sure. Have you never read Psalm 8, verse 2? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now, what is he saying when he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2? He says, you know, yeah, I hear what the kids are saying. It's right out of Scripture. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 8, verse 2, that out of the mouth of infants, they will crush you who are against me. What are these infant, what are these little kids saying? They're saying, Hosanna. Let him live, the son of David. Let, his, let him have praises. Let him have glory. Let him have splendor. He is the son of David which means he is on the throne of David. He is on the throne of God. What the scribes were saying, don't you understand what they're saying? They are saying, you are God. And that's blasphemous. And Jesus says, wrong. They are saying, I am God, and they're absolutely correct. I am. And I'm on the throne of David, just as they say. I am your ruler, I am the Lord. They get it. You don't. I'll protect them. You will be crushed. You see the power. Even, you know, when God says, you know, if you don't let these kids cry out, stones will cry out. I am the son of David. I am Lord of lords. I have come that you might have life. I have come to take on flesh. I have come to be among you, when you begin to think about the value that that brings us, back in Psalm um, 8, verse 3, says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. It's like, wow, what am I? And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, you're the one I've come for. I have come to take on flesh, to be God in the flesh, to care for you, to be your ruler, to be your Lord, to be your redeemer. Do we get that? Verse 3, he says, once again, look to the heavens and be a, become an astronomer with me for just a minute. I know it's astronomically inaccurate, it's approximate, but it's begin to see the splendor that he, that he leads us to. He says, I consider the heavens the work of your fingers. And then he mentions the moon and the stars which you have ordained. Okay, the moon is 240,000 miles or, yeah, miles from us. The stars, if there's 100 billion 
galaxies. I mean, stop and think about that. Um, The speed of light, light travels at 186,000 miles uh, per second. So if if, if, if light is going that fast, and God says, you remember Genesis chapter 1? It says, the earth was formless, and it was void, and darkness covered this void. And God said, let there be light. So I don't know if he's at that moment put the moon at 240,000 miles away. Or if at that moment he put the sun 93 million miles away. But light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So when God said, let there be light, light hit the earth, hit the darkness. And light at that speed can travel all the way around the earth seven times. Can you imagine us going from darkness to light like that? Just look at that. Consider that. That's our God that's creating light in the midst of darkness. And he's personally separating the light from the darkness just for us. And then he gets to verse 4. So then what is man? I mean, can, can you imagine God kind of thinking out loud, Father talking to the Son, the Holy Spirit? Hey, let's, let's, uh, let's make this planet called Earth. And let's make man there in our image. And they're going to need some light. Let's put the, the moon up here at 240K. And let's put the sun. It's, it's, it's going to be hot. Let's, let's move it on out about 93 million miles, okay? That'll work. And let's give them some, some stars, galaxy. Let's cover the heavens. And it's going to be so far out now, we've got to switch from talking about miles to light years. Let's put Pluto out there at four point two light years away. And God creates the heavens. He places the stars, Genesis 1.14 says, in the expanse of the heavens. And he names them all one by one. Where were you? When this was taking place, who are you? Who am I? And I would think, I come somewhat equal to God in any way. What is man that you take thought of him? Why should God have a thought of us? Uh, The son, for the son of man that you care for him, that he would love us so much that he would give his son to die for us in our place. Um, Like I said, I am not an astronomer. I, I, I can't comprehend this stuff. 
I can't do the math for this stuff. And I'm not trying to, to present to you a picture that I know all this. Because it's not about, to me, astronomical accuracy. It's about astronomical immensity. Whatever your numbers, your figures, they're beyond us. They're beyond what we can comprehend. So what is man but a speck in this huge universe that God has created? You know, uh, we talk about the problems of our world. What's the greatest problem in our world? And I could do a survey in here and we get lots of answers. Um, and they'd all be great problems. What's the greatest? You know, the greatest problem is, is uh, violence. The greatest problem is, is, is uh, not, not enough love caring for one another. The greatest problem is, is uh, our immorality. The greatest problem is pornography. The greatest problem is self-centeredness. Uh, the greatest problem is apathy, indifference. All good answers. But I really think the greatest problem, much different than those, the greatest problem is that we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Our greatest problem is we don't comprehend the truth of God. We push it out. We suppress it because of our own unrighteousness. And we try to make sense of this world without God. And it can't happen. It will never happen. Uh, let, me, let me share with you that I call this, this is my greatest problem. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul summarizes what he was supposed to do as a preacher. And this blows me away as a preacher. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 8. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach. So I look at that and say, well, if Paul was needing grace, boy, I really need it. So to me, God has given grace to preach to you, to the Gentiles. And notice what he's supposed to preach, verse 8. He's supposed to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. How can I do that? That's a tremendous problem for me. How can me, one who's very finite, very frail, very dumb, comparatively speaking, how can I somehow explain, preach, or proclaim the unfathomable like I said, when you begin to think of the immensity of God and the work of his fingers, it is unfathomable. And yet I'm to proclaim to you the unfathomable riches of God, of Christ, and to bring to light, because we're in darkness, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities 
in heavenly places. Don't miss that. I'm supposed to somehow communicate to you, you will get it, that Christ has unfathomable riches and resources, and yet he wants to come to you, and he wants to come to me, and he wants to declare the wonders of God's grace, and that grace is to transform the church, and through the church, he wants to send a message to the rulers and to the authorities in heavenly places. So our ministry is not just here on earth. God is, is doing something that many times we don't even comprehend. When you begin to think the value of man, then the value of the church, that we have a ministry God has planned to silence the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Who do you think maintains all of these billions and billions of stars? There's rulers and there's authorities. There's dominions. And the church will supplant them. Christ has designed it. Our heavenly work is so multifaceted. And there's so, as the Hubble telescope tells us, there's so many billions and billions. We could all own a planet one day. And be managing it. There's so much of that. And God says, I am going to use the church to become the rulers. And he even chides us at times. Why is it y'all can't make easy decisions? Do you not know you've destined to be a ruler? And to have dominion? And to have the wisdom of God come in and through the church. It's, It's quite immense when you begin to think about all that God has designed for us. Uh, verse 4 and 5. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than God. Wow. You've taken man, this speck on this planet called earth. And you've made him to be just a little lower in authority and power than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Look over at Psalm 103, 14 through 16. Psalm 103. It says, he himself knows our frame. Boy, that's good. He is mindful that we are but dust. See, he gets it. As for man, his days are like grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it's no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But then he starts saying, but God loves that speck of dust. And his love is everlasting. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep covenant with him. God has determined to take those who are his church who are but a speck of dust, who live here but such a short time, and to give us his everlasting love. And you can imagine the rest of the creation, the rulers and the dominions and the authorities, perhaps even asking the question, what? What is man that you would 
do this for man and to man. You've placed these billions of stars. How, how significant is man in this? Back Psalm 8, verse 6. You make him, man, to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And there's so much there to consider. Where Christ came to earth, he died for us, he was buried, he rose again. He says, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. He says, but I will put all, subject all of the enemies beneath my feet. Again, quoting from here. And I'm going to give power to my church to rule over all of these enemies and adversaries and kingdoms and dominions and authorities. What is man? That God would do such. And it keeps pointing you back. Who is God? Who has such greatness. And power. That he would do such. For men. Their children. For his church. We begin to see the significance of. Of life. In Christ. We think sometimes. You know. uh, What rules is disease and. Disaster and death. And don't contemplate, no, who rules is Christ. And through his church, he, he will rule all heavenlies, authorities, and dominions. So the only, the only thing needed is redemption for man. And God promises that us, us that in Christ. All sheep, verse 7, and oxen. And also the beast of the field, the birds, the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. He says, we're going to rule it all. He says, whatever it is that you can imagine or think about, you will rule as that man whom Christ loves. Um, We sometimes run from God. We should be running to God. He alone has the power and the authority to redeem us and to give us such rule and such authority. Um, with Christ's crucifixion, Satan thought he was winning. Christ said, ah, you miss it. Listen to the kids. They'll tell you who I am and that I'm winning and I put all enemies at my feet and I will redeem a church and she will rule. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So what's the application? What's, what's the point beyond just sitting there and saying, wow, I'm just overwhelmed. Because it's, it's so great to think such thoughts. Well, so application number one, obviously we should worship the Lord and be overwhelmed with His majesty. That should clearly be an application of this passage. Um, we're designed to declare how much more glorious God is than we can ever imagine. He is, but he is. And we should worship and adore him. Um, even thinking through, there's, worship is warfare. There's times when we gather as his church here just this morning and we sing praises. And there's authority saying, what's going on here? And we are declaring our Lord in the heavenlies. And enemies are being thwarted. And their voices are being squashed and put down as the church sings its adoration and praise. 
the, the realms beyond us that we don't even think about. Our worship is valuable. It's important. We have a message to say in heavenly places. And we begin it here on earth. That's worship. It's warfare. Spiritual warfare. That God has designed for us to participate in. Second, I think it should teach us how to steward our resources. As Joe was talking about earlier, everything we have comes from God. He's put everything into place. We didn't create our existence. We didn't create our things. There's no way we can declare God's majesty except, rightly, except as a steward. We cannot abort the child in the mother's womb and say, Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. Since he created that child with his own fingers. We cannot even throw out the Pepsi can on the side of the road. And say, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. Since he created this beautiful planet. Would we be the one to litter what God has made in his splendor. We can't euthanize our older ones that God has displayed much wisdom through. And say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. No, we must steward all of these resources God has given us and declare this is for his majesty. This is for our king. This is for our Lord. He has blessed us with this. And what is man that he would even do such? We are blessed and are blessed to bless him. Third, it should teach us how to love one another more. If God has taken thought of us out of all of the universe, then we should take thought of each other much more carefully, much more tenderly. Love the creation that God has chosen to love. And fourth, we should seek salvation through Christ. I mean, if you're struggling to worship, spend the time to meditate and say, you know, what am I missing here? You're missing the bigness of God. You're suppressing the truth of God for your own unrighteousness. Ask God for repentance. Ask God, take, take away this, this thought. I need a new heart. I need a new vision of who God is so I can more rightly see who I am and respond to him appropriately. You know, um, how many moviegoers do we have? How many people have seen the, the recent movie, First Man. Just give me an idea. Not as many as I thought. I thought every hand would go up. But yeah, yeah. Okay, got a few. Um, 40, 50 of you. The first, the first Man movie is about Apollo 11 going to the moon, man walking on the moon. Now, I'm old enough to remember the first time that happened. I didn't have to see the movie. I caught it live, you know. And uh, so I remember that. And I remember, I mean, the, the name Neil Armstrong is just, imp, you know, it's there. Because that was pretty significant for a man to reach the moon. You know, it, cost, it, it didn't even cost much back then. Just six billion dollars. Got a nice bag of rocks for that. You know, we brought them back. But the movie didn't just tell you the Christian parts. There were two people that were on that trip. There was Neil Armstrong, and then there was Buzz Aldrin. And they don't want to tell you about Buzz. They want to tell you about the little step of man, the giant leap for mankind. That always makes the movie. Because that's what we do as, as people. 
typically doesn't tell you that Buzz Aldrin, after the, he got on the moon, takes out his prepackaged bread and wine, had his own little communion service, in thanks to God for life and redemption in the midst of all. And on the voyage back, Buzz Aldrin, as he, as he pulls away from, from the moon, you can see the moon and you see back out in the space and back down towards earth. And he read Psalm 8. Verse 3 and 4. And you can imagine looking out of your spacecraft that close to the moon and all the stars. And he read, which I heard on my radio, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? And I think if you don't stop in that moment when you're seeing the moon and you're seeing the galaxy and you're seeing back at earth, if you don't stop and think about God, the work of God's fingers, it's pointless. It doesn't make any sense if God's not in the picture. If God is in the picture, then the question is, and What will you do with me, oh God, in the midst of all of this? And God says, I take thought of you, and I care for you, and I'm building a church, and I'm giving you authority and power to rule and to speak to dominions and to authorities in heavenly places. And we say, God, I'm overwhelmed. I can't take that in. Let's pray together.